Good afternoon. So good to see every one of you today. I know I say that every Sunday, but I really am thankful that you are here. Two years ago, this church did not exist, but by God's grace, I know for sure that it is only by His grace, it is only by His doing that we are gathered here worshiping our glorious and gracious God this afternoon. Amen? Amen. Next week, we are celebrating our second year anniversary. As Pastor Jeremy shared, we invite all of you to come, members, non-members, and join us for our fellowship dinner. It's our way of saying thank you. You might receive a little gift, perhaps. So please come, invite your friends, and join us as we celebrate the Lord's grace for two years of New Covenant Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 15. That's where we will be meditating on this afternoon. Tom Turchich and his walking companion, his dog, Savannah, returned home this March of this year after walking 28,000 miles around the world. From U.S. down to Mexico, to South America, to Antarctica, to Europe, then Africa, parts of Asia, Australia, and finally back to the U.S. After walking through 38 different countries, step by step, day by day, year by year, after 45 pairs of shoes later, Turchich finished his seven-year journey, which he began in April of 2015. You can read more about his adventures at worldwalk.com. You'll see some interesting pictures and videos and journal articles that he has kept up with for these seven years of his journey. Coming across his story, what was the most interesting to me was that Turchich began his journey after his close friend passed away suddenly at age uh, 17, when he was 17 years old. And he explains how her death destroyed his assumptions about life. And knowing that he himself could die at any moment, he wanted to experience life and explore the world, so he began his walking. Well, Turchich kept a thorough record of his adventures on his websites, photos, videos, journal entries, as I said, which you can donate at least $1 to get the high-quality content. But in one of his journal entries, which he posted in year six of his journey, He describes one instance of the tremendous difficulties of his walk. He writes, and I quote, Yet despite my body feeling strong and my spirit riding high of walking again, I felt on a deeper level a profound exhaustion from defending myself against my self-imposed solitude over the past 10 years. Later in the journal entry, he writes of a figurative armor that he literally had to put on in order to fight the emotional, mental, physical battles uh, he had to fight in order to continue on his walk. He writes, The armor I woke thickened as I went. I straightened it, tightened it, and it protected me. It kept me safe from loneliness. It held together as I navigated through new cultures on my own, as I raised Savannah, my dog, as I pushed my body, and as I walked for months in the desert, as I climbed mountain after mountain, and most importantly, as I fell asleep each night. But after 10 years of wearing the armor sometime in Azerbaijan or Turkey, I realized the armor was beginning to crack. For a few months more, I did my best to keep the armor patched tighter, but it was no good. The armor was finished. And after walking Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, once I knew I was headed back to America, I accepted the weight of the armor just wasn't worth what it offered anymore. We began walking again. The cart pressed against me, and I pushed it back, fighting gravity with my weary body. I was wrecked physically, emotionally, spiritually, but I wasn't going to give in. 
Finish it, I said to myself. Finish it, I said again. Finish it, inhale. In six years of walking, I had never spoken to myself in mantras, but never before had a mile of road represented so much. It was my life after the walk. It was the past six years, and it was seven months remaining. It was my exhaustion. It was me dragging myself to the finish line. Finish it, inhale. Finish it, the cold air stung my throat. The road grew steeper, but my legs kept moving. Finish it, I shouted with tears in my eyes. Finish it, my back was knotted. Finish it, the words were empty. Inspiration was long gone. Finish it, there was only grit. As tears fell from my eyes continually, finish it, I pleaded. Finish it. Finish it. Close quote. For most of us, we will never experience such a self-imposed, physically grueling journey. Yet as Christians, we know of a similar struggle in a spiritual pilgrimage toward heaven. In our passage this afternoon, the psalmist in Psalm 15 asks a profound question. One commentator says even the ultimate question. More important than asking yourself how you're going to pay for your mortgage next month or plan for your retirement. More important than whom you will date or even whom you are going to marry if that's on your mind this afternoon. More important than what school you will go to, what career path you will choose. In a hundred years, those questions will not matter anymore. But this question posed by the psalmist will matter for all eternity. Who? Who can live with God in his heaven? And how can we get there? That is the ultimate question the psalmist helps us to answer this afternoon. We're continuing our intermittent series, Summer in the Psalms, in which we hope, Lord willing, to cover 10 psalms each summer, June, July, and August, which will take us a total of 15 years, and we are in year two. I've been encouraging our congregation to read through the entire book of Psalms each summer because there are things that you just will not get unless you read the book in its entirety, all 150 chapters, short chapters. And so if you have already started in June, continue reading two to three chapters a day. If you still have not begun reading, that's okay. It's July 3rd, so you have 43 weekdays, Monday through Friday of summer, to read three to four chapters uh, each day to catch up. Or if you want to read all seven days a week, you can still read two to three chapters in July and August, and you could still finish the entire book, 150 chapters, by the end of the summer. Amen? The Psalms in its whole is composed in two main categories, Psalms of Lament and Psalms of Praise. They're mostly Psalms to be sung as a congregation by the Israelites, whom God set apart as His people in the Old Testament. The Psalms teaches readers how believers ought to properly respond living in a world full of sin, in a world that's broken and full of pain and evil all around. But here's the thing. In the Psalms, even in the midst of suffering and sorrows, the Psalm teaches us who God is and to remember His promises and not to hope ultimately in the things of this world or the princes of this world, but to hope in the one true coming Messiah, King Jesus Christ. In Psalm 14 from last Sunday's passage, we observe the proverbial fool who says in his heart, there is no God. But Psalm 15 leads us to consider the righteous one who will dwell with God in heaven. Some biblical scholars call Psalm 15 the Ten Commandments of the Psalms, seeing there are ten descriptions of the one who shall dwell with God in his holy hill. And though there are many different ways to outline this psalm, I want us to consider six 
characteristics, six characteristics of the righteous one from Psalm 15. Here's the outline so you can follow the question we're asking. Who may dwell in God's holy hill? The outline, point number one, the blameless. The blameless. Point number two, the truthful. Point number three, the loving. Point number four, the wise. Point number five, the committed. And point number six, the generous. Blameless, truthful, loving, wise, committed, and the generous. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will encourage you to examine yourselves upon the excellent standard of God's word this afternoon, and that it will be a humbling reminder for you, causing you to worship our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we can have confident hope. If you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, welcome. We're so glad that you are here this afternoon joining us uh, in worshiping our God this afternoon. We pray that this message will point you to the one who has taken our place as a sinless substitute who died to forgive our sins and grant us his righteousness in order that we may have new life in him. Friend, listen carefully. If you're not a Christian and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the good news that this psalm is filled with, and come to see how the God of this universe calls you to respond today. So without further ado, let's turn now to our passage found on page 453 in our blue Bibles around you. And as you listen, I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along as I read and preach to help you better retain the words. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible to read at home, please take one of those blue Bibles at home as a gift from us to help you grow in studying God's Word. Psalm Chapter 15 says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So point number one, who can dwell with God in heaven? Point number one, the blameless. Read with me verse one and the first part of verse two one more time. It says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. The first observation I want to make of this psalm is the encapsulating question that I addressed that I mentioned in the psalm in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The word sojourn and dwell at first may not seem to be compatible words, but the idea is this. Who can come to your tent? Who can live in your holy hill? Or... Who can approach you? Who can stay with you? These are the questions that the psalm is asking. Or in other words, who is qualified to be in your holy presence? And when you understand Israel's history in the Old Testament, how the people of God sojourned through the wilderness for 40 years and they had no permanent place of worship, only a temporary tent of meetings which held the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the Israelites would set up to worship God and where God's presence would come and meet them and speak with them. And the phrase, holy hill, refers to Mount Zion 
in which the Bible refers to a number of times in the Old and the New Testament, a place of great significance and symbolism, the place where God dwells according to Isaiah 8, 18, and Psalm 74, 2. It's the place where God is king according to Isaiah 24, verse 23, and where God installed his King David in Psalm 2, verse 6. And it's where God will reign and will be exalted according to Psalm 99.2, Psalm 102.16, and Revelation 14.1, among so many other verses in Scripture that references Zion. So again, the question of this psalm, who can come to God? Who can be with God? This should be the ultimate question for all who wrestle with the truths of life and its purpose and its meaning. Why do we exist? Where are we headed And how can we get there? Am I qualified? It's the question I pray all of us will be asking and examining ourselves with uh, this afternoon from God's Word. And before we move on, just a few thoughts on the structure of the psalm. It's very important, which I hope it will be helpful in your study of the Scriptures. As I mentioned briefly earlier, there are many ways to outline or structure this psalm. The easiest way you see in terms of outlining and understanding the passage exegetically where you see the natural breaks of the text is perhaps in this way, a three-point sermon. The question in verse 1, the answer from verses 2 to the first part of 5, and the promise in the last phrase of verse 5. That's an easy way to outline this passage. The question, the answer, and the promise. That's obvious, isn't it? Another interesting way that the commentators break down this psalm is seeing it, as I mentioned earlier also, as the Ten Commandments or the Ten Characteristics of the One who will enter heaven. So you see, look with me to Psalm 15, three positive characteristics in verse 2, three coinciding negative characteristics in verse 3, two positive characteristics in verse 4, and then another two negative characteristics in verse 5. But this outline is relatively debatable and not as clear because some credible biblical scholars actually argue instead of 10, there are 11 characteristics highlighted in this psalm. Anyways, after much debate in my own mind whether this sermon should be a 10-point sermon or a three-point sermon or a one-point sermon with five subpoints, what got me to a six-point sermon homiletically is coming to learn about the Hebrew poetic structure in which the psalm was originally written in through James Montgomery Boyce's insightful commentary. So just to touch on it briefly, whereas in English poetry, poems are often marked by rhyme and meter, well, the chief characteristic of Hebrew poetry are its parallel lines or parallelism, which simply means usually the idea of the first line is repeated or paralleled in the second line with a slight variation, although sometimes it's not that simple always. So for example, follow along. This is really interesting. For example, sometimes the lines do involve mere repetition as in the couplet, the first part of verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Similar ideas are repeated. Sometimes lines express contrast, as in the couplet, in the last part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. If you're not looking at your Bibles, you're going to be really bored and lost. So look at your Bibles. The last part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. Who speaks truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue. Similar ideas, except this time contrasted. Sometimes the lines emphasize the idea, as in the couplet in the second half of verse 4. Look at verse 4, the second half. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The line, and does not change, 
emphasizes or stresses or further explained by the line, who swears to his own hurt. Are you with me? Are you following along? And when you see the prominence of this parallel structure in this psalm, it really helps to make sense of the psalm better. So, rather than giving you a structural outline, I always aim to give you handles or takeaways or truth based on the text. Hence, six couplets, which helps us to answer the main question of the psalm in verse 1. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Six points or six characteristics of the one who will dwell with God in heaven. I hope that is helpful. That's our starting point. Now, I want to say from the outset, the characteristics described in the psalm is not an exhaustive or an all-inclusive description. It is rather representative. What I mean by that is there are other passages in Scripture that asks almost identical questions as this psalm does. So, for example, Psalm 23, verses 3 through 4. Flip back a few pages with me to Psalm 24, verse 3. Look there to that verse. Psalm 24, verse 3. It says this, asking the same question, Who shall ascend... The hills of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Flip back to Psalm 15. In Isaiah 33, 14 through 17, in which the prophet Isaiah asks in verse 14 a very similar question as well Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? Or even our scripture reading that our sister Elaine read for us earlier in our service from the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. It is not an exhaustive description. These qualities are not a checkoff list of religious acts one must accomplish in order to get to heaven, in order to be approved by God. They are descriptions of genuine Christians. They are characteristics of the citizens of heaven. And so the tension and the aim of a passage like this is pointing us to an imperative truth regarding the Christian faith, which the psalm will force us to resolve. And I'm going to get there soon. But for now, again, the ultimate question of the psalm, who belongs? How can we get there? That's the question. And the first characteristic, again, is blameless. Blameless. Look at the first part of verse 2 one more time. It says this, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. The idea of walking blamelessly entails the idea of someone who lives his whole life in a blameless manner. The word has in it the description of sinless perfection, but it's more than that, you see. Blamelessness involves wholeness, completeness, honesty, and integrity. And Scripture is consistent on this idea. There is never any compromise on this standard. The one who desires to come to God, to worship God, to dwell with God, to have peace with God, to be in His presence, and I hope that is you, the one who desires to worship God. Jesus Himself says in Matthew 5, 48, You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And understand, the reason is because God is holy, Because he is perfection, he cannot dwell with the imperfect. So many times in the Old Testament scriptures, those who attempted to approach God or worship God by their own means, you know what happened to them? Not according to the word, not according to God's instructions. They were severely punished. They simply died in his sight because God is holy. God is righteous. God is glorious. That is who he is. Therefore, whoever desires to dwell with him must also be blameless. It's the reason why some commentators say this is the one point of the psalm. 
And the rest of the psalm just merely supports this point. So one point sermon with five subpoints. That's where I almost got that. Okay? He who is blameless is all the ways below. We see that not only does he walks or lives in such a way, holistically, consistently, and continually, internally, but that verse describes also that he does right externally, internally and externally. His life is marked by a characteristic of blamelessness and rightness thoroughly. That's point number one. Point number two, who can dwell with God? The truthful. The psalmist helps us to consider the righteous one's speech. Look at the second half of verse two and the first part of verse three. It says, and he speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue. These verses describe the one who is acceptable to God is the one who speaks truth in his heart. Truth uh, as not merely in terms of correctness or accuracy, but in terms of being trustworthy, something that is unchangeable, lasting, and secure. It describes someone who is tethered to the very character of God himself, as God himself is described in the Bible as the true God in John 17:30, As Jesus himself proclaimed himself to be the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. And as the Holy Spirit is named the Spirit of Truth in John 14, 17. And as the Word of God is called the truth in John 17, 17. So the idea that the righteous one is he who knows God's truth and speaks God's truth to his own heart. He is one who knows God's truth and knows God's word. His heart is filled up with God's truth, with God's word. That's what this verse is talking about. And because his words are the outflow of his heart, according to Proverbs 4.23 and Matthew 12.34, the psalmist says the one who dwells with God is one who does not slander with his tongue. He doesn't speak falsehood from his lips. He doesn't speak backbiting words. He doesn't speak words that defame or words that tear down or words that injure or belittle. Words that do not align with God who is truth, who loves truth, who hates lies and deception and falsehood. One commentator says, a slanderer is the most terrible of wild beasts. Another commentator says, pity your brethren. Let it suffice that godly ministers and Christians are loaded with reproaches by wicked men. There is no need that you as Christians should combine with them in this diabolical, devilish work. Goodness, brothers and sisters, what a word for you and me this afternoon for our examination. What a word for Christians who are so divided over non-essentials in our day. What a word for Christian influencers or wannabe Christian celebrities, which is an oxymoron in itself on Twitter and social media who aim to argue their convictions and provoke others before a watching world. They divide the body. They destroy our witness. They shame the name of Christ. May it never be, dear brother or sister, that you are known as one who speaks foolishly or falsely about others, in turn speaking falsely about your own faith as a Christian and testifying falsely about our true God. That is point number two. Point number three, who shall dwell with God in Zion? Point number three, the loving one. Look at the second half of verse three. And does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Not only does the righteous one not speak falsities to his neighbor, his words are 
paralleled by his actions. Note the important point of difference. It's one thing to not say bad things about someone. It's an entirely another thing to not do bad things to someone, you see? Especially if they have wronged you or have offended you. Or perhaps according to your eyes, they are of less importance or significance to you. Notice these people that the psalmist is referring to are neighbors and friends. Did you see that in that verse? Living in a broken, fallen world, it is so very often we will get into conflicts with one another, especially, particularly, regularly with those who we are close to. Yet the psalmist explains, the one who belongs to God does no evil thing to his own neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. I don't think I have to explain what doing evil means to you. That's pretty self-explanatory. But what does taking up a reproach against a friend mean? It means responding to someone with strong emotions, with anger, with frustration, with ill will. How many of you are guilty of that this afternoon? Against your own spouses? Against your own parents? Toward your own children? Toward your friends? Isn't the scripture so poignant? Because in most cases, why would we do evil things or take up a reproach toward strangers? It's those who we are closest to. We so often provoke, harass, or hurt, whether intentional or unintentional. Brothers and sisters, what a necessary word for all of us this afternoon as we are about to participate in the Lord's Supper at the close of this message. This word requires you to examine your heart. May the Spirit of the Lord bring you conviction. How have your words and your actions, whether intentional or unintentional, hurt or harm others, carefully meditated or carelessly uttered, caused injury and harm to a family member, a friend, or a fellow church member? Are you here to worship the Lord who hears all things, who sees all things, who knows all things, yet you approach him without humility and honesty and hypocrisy? May his kindness lead you to repentance this afternoon. May his words, his truth, cause you to plead for his mercy this moment. The one who comes to God, the one who abides in God, is the one who loves his neighbors and loves his friend. Interesting how these characteristics turn out to others, isn't it? Much like the Ten Commandments does. The one who loves God, who professes to love God, the one who is blameless before God, loves others. As Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So brothers and sisters, what does your relationship with other fellow believers reveal about your love for God? This is one of the reasons why we as a church emphasize so much at New Covenant Baptist Church about church membership. Church is not a place, please hear my words very clearly, church is not a place where you come and go as you please. Church is not that even in its very essence. The church is not a place. The church is not a building. A church is a people who have been called by God, a people who have been delivered from darkness to light, a people who are keenly aware, very, very aware of our flaws 
and our shortcomings. Therefore, we are humble. A people who know that they can't live as Christians alone. It's impossible to live the Christian life alone. A people who are committed and covenanted to one another to disciple one another, to help each other follow Christ and spur one another in faith. If you're not getting this yet, no wonder perhaps you are living a hypocritical life. No wonder you are stuck in the same cycle of sin. No wonder you are not growing spiritually and dissatisfied and discontent in God. And this is the worst one of all. No wonder you think Christianity is boring and mundane. So stop today being so stuck on yourself, being so self-absorbed, and dare I even say self-righteous. And I say this about every single person, every human being who depend on themselves and not on God. Don't be so self-absorbed on your careers on your families only, on your own happiness, on your self wholly. If you say you are just so busy all the time, you have no time whatsoever to pour into others as a Christian, if you're a Christian, these words ought to put a serious pause, a break in your life, and cause you to examine how you ought to reprioritize your life. Brothers and sisters, if you call yourself a Christian, look to Christ, look to the Scriptures, Look to those around you who need your encouragement, who need your reminders, who need your presence, who need your love and care and prayers. Amen? Friends and visitors, if you are not a Christian and these words sound a bit harsh to you, it's because our relationship with each other as Christians is just that important, that there be no division among us, that we be eager to maintain the unity within us, That's why John 13, verse 25 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The reason that people will know that we are believers and Christians is by our love for one another. Hebrews 10, 24, verse 25 says, Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, it is the very identity of who we are as Christians. People who know God and love God, love others, especially other believers. That's point number three. Point number four, if you're hot, just know and imagine how hot I am up here. (laughs) Point number four, who can dwell with God? Point number four, the wise. Look at the first half of verse four. In whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord. He is a person who possesses discernment, who is wise about who he considers to be worthy of respect and honor. In a day, brothers and sisters, where the loud and the proud and the talented and the wealthy and the celebrity are heralded and followed as heroes and role models in our culture, the psalmist correctly assesses that the righteous one is the one who is able to distinguish the vile person from the righteous and despise the vile person. Now, there is a reason why we spend a whole long point on why such a person is first a loving person, because the point is the discerning person is not a judging person in the sense of having their noses stuck up high in the air, thinking they are better than other people. But it is a person, however, who can tell, who can call evil, evil, vile, vile, bad, bad. There is no question in one's mind who is such a person. There is no compromise in character in who he sees as a mentor and a model. Correctly, he discerns and honors those who fear the Lord. 
I was thinking about this recently in the way that I model who are my models and who are my examples in the most seemingly insignificant things, such as the music I play for my kids. The truth of the matter is my kids are influenced so easily. They're shaped by me so regularly in the words I speak, in the music I listen to, in the things I watch on TV or the movies I put on the big screen, in a world where there is so much perversion and vileness, living in a world that so much of those things are normalized and championed as good. I challenge the parents, how are you doing modeling discernment? How are you exercising wisdom in the way you disciple your children? Okay, you are protecting them from much of those things, I commend you. But unless you hide them away forever, how are you teaching them the truth of God's word to be their impenetrable armor, sword, and shield? If you're not a parent, don't think you are safe from the world's very pervasive and committed and intentional discipleship of its ways. You keep listening to its wretched music. You keep exposing yourself to its wicked images, the culture's foolish and falsehood. And before you know it, you will be led astray. As so many so-called Christians have been deconstructed in their faith in the recent years, especially in the pandemic, because they don't have the wisdom. They don't have the discernment to tell what is truth from what is falsehood. Don't think that you are above it. Be humble. Seek wisdom. Seek discernment. Brothers and sisters, I am so disturbed. I am so disturbed that in our very community, in our very county of Montgomery County, this past month, they hosted in our public libraries for our children drag queen story hours. They are grooming our children to normalize that the vileness and the perversion of being a drag queen is acceptable and normal and good. I can say so much more, but I don't want to distract us from the point. The world and the ruler of this world, Satan, is not silent, nor still in his pursuit to steal, kill, and destroy. So my challenge for us from this word is, do you have wisdom? Do you have discernment? Some practical ways you can grow in this is to cling to the truth of God's word. How do you do that? You read God's word. You read God's word. You study God's word. You memorize God's word. You hide God's word. You speak God's word in your heart, in your mind, in your speech. I love the confession of Peter in John 6, verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Brothers and sisters, in this age, in this culture, the words of God are either death or life. You either know it and cling to it and hope in it and stand on it, or you are dead. Amen? Are you spending time, brothers and sisters, with mature believers who fear the Lord? In God's economy, age does not equal spiritual maturity. You can be 60 years old, you can be 70 years old and still be an infant in Christ. You need the help of mature, wiser saints to teach you and rebuke you and train you up in righteousness with God's word. Amen? I can say more, but just one more thing. I'm so excited to have Pastor Steve Pettit, my college pastor, come teach us God's word next weekend. He has been with me, teaching me and loving me over these 20 plus years. And I'm just telling you, what can we say of men and women in our lives whom the Lord has gifted us to know and be loved by and be cared for? They are to be honored. Pray, pray that you yourself will be known by such men and women of this congregation and learn and grow from them and with them. Pray for wisdom. Pray for discernment. Pray for yourselves 
and for one another. Point number five. We're moving quickly through it. Who will dwell with God? Point number five, the committed. Look at the second half of verse four. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The ESV translation of that phrase is a bit hard to grasp at first. And the NIV translation is helpful here. And it's translated, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. What glorious words, aren't they? These are not words you hear much in our self-obsessed society. Sure, no one has much trouble keeping his or her word when they are to do it, and it's to their person's own advantage. But how about when the conditions have changed and the promise, agreement, or contract is no longer to one's advantage? Do we honor our words then? Do we fulfill the contract then? Or do we try to find some technical way, some loophole to get out of what you yourself have committed to? We have professional lawyers who even do this work for us. We pay tons of money to do this in our society. We pay financial accountants to get out of paying as little money as possible for taxes or things that we are ticketed for out of our pockets, don't we? We try to save ourselves from keeping our word when it hurts. In a society where overt sexuality is idolized and divorce is normalized, no wonder our words carry such little weight. No wonder there are so few who keep their oath even when it hurts and does not change. Brothers and sisters, what does your commitment look like toward God, toward your spouse, toward your family members, toward your church members? Do you realize that as Christians in our lives, only two places covenants are employed, marriage and the local church? So my question for you, are you faithful Are you committed? Are you devoted? Are you all in? Do you keep your oath even when it hurts? Even when you have to suffer for it? For the sake of those you committed to, do you keep your word? How do you live up to your word? How are you in your purity? How are you in your fidelity? How are you in your humility? How are you in your love? Which leads us to our final point Who shall dwell with God forever? Point number six, the generous one. The generous one. Look at the first two phrases of verse five. It says this. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent? You see, the one who dwells in the presence of God, the one who abides in God, does not put out money, his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. It simply means you don't attempt to take advantage of someone for their money. Let me say that again. You don't attempt to take advantage of someone for their money. Let that sit with you however it sits by the Holy Spirit. You don't rob them of their finances. What is not rightfully yours is not yours. Funny, in speaking of commitments and covenants, the scripture leads us to money, doesn't it? This is because oftentimes where or how we use our money is a good indicator of where our heart is of where our treasure is. Just look at someone's bank account, bank account statements, and the use of their money. It will indicate very clearly what are the most important things in a person's life. That's why Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in this sense, your financial giving to God may be an indicator of your spiritual health or your spiritual maturity. Now don't get me wrong, the amount 
does not equal more maturity. Not so ever. That is heresy. If anybody says, if you give more, then you are more mature, that is heresy. That's not what I'm saying. But your generosity, your intentionality does. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 7, sums it up very, very nicely. It says this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Think about these words carefully. The point is not that you give. The point, again, is not how much you give. The point is not to be guilted into giving. That's not what I'm doing right now. You can give thousands of dollars, yet still dishonor God. The point is, again, from this verse, how you give. God loves a generous, bountiful giver. A thoughtful or an intentional, not reluctantly giver. God loves a cheerful not a fearful, not lacking trust giver. That's what that text says. Why? Why? Because when you give in such a way, it shows that you trust God more than your financial comforts. It shows you prioritize Him more than your financial security. It shows that you have faith in Him. So again, this is all the more reason why it's so important what kind of church you give to and what kind of church you join. Make sure that it's a gospel-preaching church and that their priorities are clear in advancing God's kingdom. Amen? Well, how are you feeling? Do you feel worthy? Do you belong in the holy hill of God? Are you confident you are a citizen of heaven according to these qualities? If you feel heavy and convicted and hot, literally, emotionally, spiritually, maybe even feeling guilty and ashamed. I think this is exactly where the aim of this psalm, and as I mentioned, the tension of this psalm is leading us to. Just as the Ten Commandments, just as the Beatitudes do, you go through all the six qualities, blameless, truthful, loving, wise, committed, and generous, and you feel that you have failed them all miserably, or at least some or most of them profoundly, don't you? Well, these 10 characteristics of Psalm 15, these six couplets of the qualities of the citizen of heaven is not meant to discourage us or leave us in our guilt and shame. It's meant to assess our hearts and to humble us of our true spiritual state. But even more so than that, it's meant to point us to the one, the righteous one, who we can look to, who we can call on, who we can be covered by his name is Jesus, the Christ, the promised one. The blameless one, according to 1 Peter 2, 2 Corinthians 5, Hebrews 4.15. The truthful one, according to John 14.6 and John 16.13. The loving one, according to John 3.16, 1 John 4.10. The wise one, according to 1 Corinthians 1.24. The committed one, according to Philippians 2.8 and Hebrews 12.2. And the generous one, according to Ephesians 5.2, Romans 8.32, and Hebrews 2.10. Galatians 3.24 says, so to put it another way, the law was our schoolmaster, our teacher, our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Simply again, brothers and sisters, there is no way 
to righteousness, to peace, to hope, to God, apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke 24, 44, you should write at least this verse down. Luke 24, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in all these things in Christ. So brothers and sisters, I have already shared with you the Psalms are about Jesus Christ. Psalm 15 points us to Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news for any and every unrighteous person to hear, believe, and respond. That God, the creator of all things, created us in love for us to know and experience his glory and his amazing love. Though man in our disobedience to his word rebelled against God and was eternally separated from God without any hope of salvation based on our own merits, scripture says we were literally dead in our trespasses and sins. Yet God, but God, for knowing all these things, had a plan from the very beginning to redeem us from our helplessness and our rebellion, to rescue us and to restore us of our relationship to himself. His plan was to send Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, who is the fullest expression and display of God's love. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says that for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did this by living the sinless life that we could not have lived, dying the substitute death that we should have died, and he suffered the punishment of God that we would have received in eternal hell. Jesus took it all upon himself on the cross for our sake. But the good news again continues is that Jesus did not die and remain dead. That is only half of the story. Jesus rose again from death, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever in order that all who call on him, anyone who would repent and believe and trust in him, will rise with him to new life and eternal life with him in his holy hill forever. Amen? Scripture says, in him by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Romans 5, 19 says, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Galatians 2, 16 says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, what good news, friends and visitors, what good news for us to know that he is our righteousness. He is our qualification. He is our justification. And that is why we can be confident of the promise of Psalm 15's final phrase. He who does these things will not be moved. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, the only hope for wretched humanity, for unworthy sinners like you and me, is to call and to cling to him who is our hope of righteousness. So dear friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, we're so glad that you are here on this very hot Sunday. Every other religion in this world attempts to achieve this righteousness, peace, oneness, karma, whatever they call it, but there is no other way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I exhort you, I plead with you, I encourage you, repent of your sins today. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you this afternoon and trust in him with your whole life this very moment. Amen? If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, please talk to me at the close of service at the back. Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy, at the outside door, we'd love to talk to you 
about how you can follow Jesus to the end. Let me conclude. Brothers and sisters, Tom Turchich gritted his way around the world in search of meaning and of life only to find his way right back home where he started. Sure, he gained lots of new experiences, but where did that lead him? He still is hopeless in his life. There is no final future, certain future for him because there is no righteousness, no peace apart from Christ. Christ, on the other hand, traveled from heaven through the cross in order to bring us with him to God, to heaven. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us sojourn together with him. Let us dwell with him towards his holy hill. As Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Amen? This is our hope. This is our certain guarantee that Christ is our substitute, that he is our savior, that he is our sure and steady anchor to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are unworthy, but you are worthy. Father, we are unrighteous, but you are righteous. And by the gift of grace, by the substitute work of Christ on the cross, Father, we have been called to be your people. Father, thank you for the confidence we have in your word, in Christ, in the gospel. If there is anyone who does not know you this day, Father, may they humbly humble themselves before you and call on you for your word says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, if there's anyone here who is not joined to a local gospel preaching church, Father, may they commit themselves to growing and serving and obeying your great commission. Make disciples of all nations. I pray that you would encourage them toward that end for your glory and for the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name.